Oh, you were very thorough in your questions. <laughs> I'm talked out. <laughs> Hello guys and welcome to episode one. Here it is, episode one of Pedaling Podcast. So I'm based in Auckland at the moment, riding back home uh, to London in 2019. And on the way I'm going to be talking to people like Barbara. So Barbara Cuthbert leads a non-profit organisation called Bike Auckland and they're an independent voice for cycling in the city. Now I really wanted to talk to her because I don't know anything about non-profit organisations in cities what they do, what their problems are, why they exist, um, how they operate and, and how they make a, a success of what they do. So me and Barbara sat down, we talked about everything from e-bikes to the pop-up of Onzo um, being commercial as a non-profit company and also improving cycling. Um, it, it's a great show and really good to get an insight into the big role people are playing within our cities, uh, especially the volunteers that go completely unnoticed as well, uh, which we talk about. So enjoy the show. Let me know any feedback if you want via pedlingpodcast.com and don't forget to follow me on Instagram as well, same uh, same name. So enjoy the first episode of Pedling Podcast with me and Barbara Cuthbert from Bike Auckland. So first question, who are you? Who am I? Bab Cuthbert and a lead an organisation called Bike Auckland. So how do you find yourself in this kind of role? I have a wider life than that. Before I, I came to Bike Auckland at, from a role as a planning consultant. So I was working in Devonport with my husband who's a structural engineer. We were raising our kids at home and we had quite a busy consultancy and I got sucked into a planning job that involved cycling. And I just by chance contacted what was then Cycle Action Auckland and they gave me the gold advice to make it wider so everybody could travel on it. And it was the best advice ever. And I also found that the project I was building on totally transformed that community. And I thought, God, this is amazing. This is way better than working for those wealthy clients I work for all the time. So what exactly did this commercial project uh, achieve? So what it did was it created a big wide boardwalk across a foreshore and it connected five local schools, the local ferry. And even more than that, that there were people who had pushchairs and wheelchairs, lots of wheelchairs in that community. And they could all coexist on this new route. And I thought, wow, you know, and uh, th this is what you can do when you're cycling. You can, you can connect people with their community, you can build strong communities. And I thought, this is for me. And just at the same time as doing that, I was contacted by Bevan Woodward, who is an absolute hero in Auckland. And he was working on the project to create a walking and cycling path on our Auckland Harbour Bridge. And he needed help from a planner. So I thought, oh, I could help him. That'd be a good thing to do. So I did. And at the same time, another transport engineer came along and joined by uh, what was Cycle Action Auckland. And Together, we ended up by helping Bevan to the extent that he then said, look, I'm going on a holiday. I'm going to leave you to look after Cycle Action. And I then got completely sucked in. So that's the history and that's where I am now, leading this organisation. So what exactly is the purpose of uh, Bike Auckland and, and why does it matter to people that you know cycle in the city themselves? And also about how you've uh, grown this, this organisation. It has a wide purpose. 
effectively we are the leading advocate group in Auckland for anybody who is either on a bike or and that's any sort of bike or who wants to ride a bike sometime in the future. So it's it's really the the doing-its and the wannabes. So what's a day in the life of, of Barbara like and, and what are what are those kind of things you're working on on a day-to-day basis that kind of has grown your uh, organization to what it is today? Right. Well, today is you. <laughs> Yesterday was not typical, it just having mentioned Skypath, but it's quite a story. So um, we have a really good sponsor in Auckland, and he's been on board now for three years. So I've been leading Bike Auckland now for about six years on my own. Um, but three years ago, the sponsor came on board and said, I really like what you're doing. He's a web, he's a web development and logistics company man, um, owns the company, big company, and he's very successful and he adores what we do. So as a result of his generosity in the last three years, we've now taken on, so we have a communications manager and an event manager, and we've just taken on another person to work on what we call our bike burbs. And that's that's a really that's an indication of the evolution of Bike Auckland because we're now so busy in Auckland that we really are working right across the top level in Auckland and including with government because you know that's the lovely thing about New Zealand we're small there's only four and a half maybe five million of us Kiwis so although I'm based in Auckland I communi- I work closely with government ministers so um, the thing is that that really consumes a lot of our time and yet we know that people love working where their heart is which is in their neighborhood they want to get to the local school the local shops more easily so we've created a program called the bike boobs short for suburbs and the new person we've now employed will be working full-time with them so that because we have things like bike devonport bike tamaki drive that's where people, they want to be at the coalface. They want to be able to change their local environment. And while they're supporters of us, they'll, they're more willing to put a lot more time into getting more easily to the shops and school. And, and we need them there because we don't know the detail of it. So the other thing that Bike Auckland has is we have transport engineers who give their time, like I do, to Bike Auckland. They work as day jobs as transport engineers. But they now, in particular, Max Robish, who leads our infrastructure team, he has the best cycling design knowledge in this country, recognised as, as such. And every road, every roading project design that is being prepared by our city transport agency or nationwide agency working on the edge of Auckland, all those projects come through Bike Auckland and we our job is, is to ensure the right cycling infrastructure is in there. So sometimes they put a bit in, but not enough. Sometimes they don't put anything at all. So our job is to say, no, no, you could do this. Look, we'll sketch it out for you. We'll show you what can be done. And that's where we're highly effective. So that's, that's in a nutshell what Bike Auckland is. What we do, what we've evolved. It's it's been around for twenty years as Cycle Action Auckland. But in the last three three years since we've become Bike Auckland, we've now got three staff, paid staff. I'm not paid, I choose not to be paid. I have a husband who's trans who's an engineer and um, agrees that, that one of us needs to 
work to make Auckland better. And, and what I've realised as a consultant is that if I put time pro bono into a job, other consultants will come along and do that as well. So that's my value, really, is that I can bring others into the team who have professional skills, but we don't have to pay them because they see the bigger and greater purpose of changing Auckland for cycling. That's what it is, and that's how, that's how it functions. I haven't talked about my day. Do you want me to? Well, yeah. Tell me, like... What happens uh, in 30 seconds, you know? You open your laptop, you make a coffee. uh, What else do you do? Yep, okay. Well, first off, we don't have an office as such because we're mobile. Um, I work from home, which I always have done. Um, And, of course, with laptops and, you know, social media, you can. So our comms manager works at home. The other two work in the biz dojo. For you listeners wondering, what the hell is the biz dojo? It's just a typical co-working space, no different from WeWork. Okay, continue on, Barbara. So what we'll do is we're in touch pretty well. We work most of the day and a lot of the night, essentially, because our volunteers have time after work to work. So what I'll do is in the morning, I'll check the emails that have come in from the team overnight. I'll deal with those. I'll deal with media inquiries. I'll then collaborate with our team on what they're doing during the day. And then I'll go off and do things independently, usually. Um, lots of media work I do, but but also a heap of relationship work. My job is to keep the government sweet and to keep the money coming for cycling. So that's, in a nutshell, what I do. I, I keep The others are there to support and collaborate. It's a very flat structure. There's no boss. It's just getting the job done in the most nimble and creative way we can. So one thing I'm really interested to know is is how your uh, funding model works um, as a non-profit How do you generate income and uh, keep your full-time staff uh, employed? First couple of years, it was our glorious sponsor who totally funded our communications manager. So for you listeners um, who are wondering who that person is, who funded all this, even I didn't know and I didn't even ask. Um, And I'm sure that's on purpose. And he saw the need for her, so he paid for her to come and join the team. He's, I've got to say, he's an absolute blessing because he's smart, he's highly strategic, and he saw that what we needed to do was to raise our profile because we were doing a heap of voluntary work, but I don't think people, people weren't seeing our value so that if a cycleway appeared, they weren't quite sure where it came from. So Bruce was really smart, and he said, no, Barb, we need comms, and we had the, we've got the best comms in Auckland. People want to steal her all the time. And so her, and the key to her comms is... There's nothing aggro. Her tone is highly collaborative, always positive. We never pick fights. We don't need to because we totally believe in our purpose. And if if people are not on board, it's just that we haven't shown them why they need to be on board. That's our approach. And the same, so that happened for the last um, three years. And then a year ago, we then, Bruce then said, hey, Barb, we need an events manager. We need to create money out of events. So we headhunted a young woman from New York, a Kiwi wanting to come home. She's now part of our team. She's now generating events, which in themselves generate sponsorship from the private sector, and we're getting money from that. So that's how it's working. And so we now both apply for grants, you see, which is something I would never had time to do before. That's massively time-consuming, and also get public sec- uh, private sector sponsorship. 
and that is actually surprisingly, I won't say easy, but as our as our profile rises, people want to be on board. And as cycling is becoming the obvious way to move around Auckland for many many people, then that becomes easier as well. So it's part of a, a massive groundswell coming from all directions, collaborating in this ferment that is cycling in Auckland. So one thing I'm really keen to know is as a a non-profit um, on a mission to change cycling in Auckland, um, how do you kind of remain true to your purpose and raise money at the same time without becoming corporate, commercial, um, and having everyone's time being focused on uh, generating money than, than, than doing good? Well, the, the two things that are really interesting there is how do we how do we stick to our sense of purpose? How do we remain true with integrity? Because that's a big issue with an advocate, particularly given our role in Auckland, where you and I are sitting here in the New Zealand Transport Agency, which is the biggest funding agency for transport in New Zealand, and they mostly build roads. And they build roads for cars and trucks and buses, not for people on bikes. That used to be the case. But And then, of course, in Auckland, we have one city covering the whole one and a half million people, so we have Auckland Transport. Now, a lot of people are cautious that if you buddy up and work with them, you sell your soul. I was used to that situation because as a planning consultant, I was frequently given asked to do jobs which I just wasn't prepared to do. So I was able to say, well, look, I'll do this job, but I'll, I'll do it my way. That's, that's the outcome I'm going to aim for. If you want a different outcome, I'm not for you. And luckily in Bike Auckland, we've managed to do the same. So at times we oppose the very agencies that give us goodwill. So Transport Agency is always aware of the fact that at times we will say to them, no, we don't agree with what you're doing here and we will not publicly support you. But that's after, so we work on a basis of no surprises. When it, when it happens, they know it's coming and they will do their darndest to make sure that it doesn't come because in the end, we need to collaborate together. And, and we do as well. I mean, there's nothing, there's no great bribe there. Essentially, we gain so much from standing shoulder to shoulder um, that, we, that we just learn to make those adjustments and at times we walk away and they can walk away from us as well. That's what it's about. But and the thing about growing an agency, I'm, I'm cautious at present as to how big we grow because I know that overseas a lot of the advocacy groups have to fund themselves through creating events. The events that we're creating are in Auckland are not sports events as such, so that we don't have because because they're very very time consuming in money and staff, and you can end up by having about half your staff there just creating the event. So in the end, you know, you're creating events to feed the staff. To you know, there's a ghastly deadly cycle there, and that's something that we're very conscious of. So the events that we're creating are community type events, whether it be a big festival on the light path where we get um, commercial sponsorship and money from the local authority as well. We're new to this game. I, I, we haven't got all the answers, but, but we've seen others do it and we want to avoid those pitfalls. So in Auckland, people are riding bikes more year on year. That's a fact. Uh, and it's the same in big cities around the world. Cycling is growing. What do you think the magic is to getting people riding bikes more in the city? 
The magic in Auckland for riding bikes initially came out of the government's um, the program for trails across the country. So we had the funny thing is that that was initiated by a conservative government, and they saw the value in terms of injecting investment into little dying parts of New Zealand, because those parts were the historic areas where there used to be things like forestry or something that was kind of interesting, created interesting communities, but they are now dying. So They also just so happened to be in the most gobsmackingly beautiful parts of New Zealand. So they were rural, they were quiet, they were dying, and they needed investment. And they learned that the cycle trail could bring investment. And they, they had the example of the Central Otago cycle trail, which from the beginning was seen as people were sceptical about it, but it's now putting at least $10 million into that small part of New Zealand called Central Otago. So they, the government had that example, and, and they then invested in more trails across the country, and they just delivered the goods, without any doubt, they have. I mean, they are absolutely beautiful. We've got the landscape that does it, endlessly variable, beautiful cycling, um, farming communities who have sharers' quarters that they're happy to turn into accommodation. Everything is there for it, and it worked. So that's when I said to the government, look, New Aucklanders are coming out of Auckland and going to ride the cycle trails, but they're coming back here and then saying, we loved it, it was fabulous, but we want to do it in the weekend, and we want to get to work that way. So as a result of that, I and others brought the government on board with money to, to, to deliver the <clears throat> what they call the Urban Cycle Programme. And that started um, four years ago, and that was the huge shift in cycling in Auckland. So started with the trails, people going out there, doing them, coming back, wanting to do more. <clears throat> and then it's the classic, build it and they'll come. <clears throat> so then we discovered that 60% of Aucklanders would ride a bike to work, if they had safe routes. Now that's not an unusual statistic. Funnily enough, it's pretty consistent across big cities in the world because people actually don't like sitting in a car. They get a bit impatient with public transport. Our public transport is getting better in Auckland, which is really important because Auckland's geography isn't easy for cycling. And so having good public transport's handy for cycling as well, particularly our trains. So Bike Auckland had a hand in designing the new Auckland trains so that there is space, dedicated space in them for bikes and that they have space even in off-peak and peak and off-peak. So as a combination, we had investment in really good public transport and trains particularly, and of course our ferries that connect up our two harbours. Bikes travel for free in trains and on ferries. And we're now spending big money, hundreds of millions of dollars in Auckland making cycling safe. And we're building from the city outwards which is the pattern that every other international, internationally successful city does. Because in the centre of the city, you've got the highest propensity of people to ride bikes. Because the jobs are there, increasingly people are living in the city, and so that's where people need to ride bikes most. And of course the distances are short. So that's what we're doing. We're building from the city outwards, we're really building good separated infrastructure, and it's delivering the goods so that on our coming in from the west of the city, we've got a section there where last year we had a 44% increase in riding bikes. And that's, that's what you get when you build the safe infrastructure where people 
have a desire to ride and they have the capability. So what do you think the future is uh, in terms of building infrastructure in cities? Um, do we have lanes that are built next to roads? Um, do we have wider roads where we can both use the same road uh, with drivers? Or is it about building completely separated lanes for cycling? The future in Auckland, and I think across the world we're seeing, is that if it's an arterial road where you've got high volumes and quite big vehicles, you know, trucks, buses, people want to be separated because they don't feel safe otherwise. You've got particularly trucks and buses, they have very limited visibility around them. So if you're riding a bike with them, you're just simply not safe. Even if the truck driver is doing his his or her very best to see you, they've got blind sections where they can't see you. So people need to be separated. And of course, with you know, with congestion, it's actually just not nice, not safe. There's there's none of that joy that we get from riding if you're weaving your way in and out of, of queued cars. And there's there's a particular joy if you're whizzing past all those queued vehicles on your own separate space. And so that's the key on arterial roads. What the other thing that we're getting happening now is that we've got in the in the suburbs, in the quiet streets, we, we're not going to build separated cycleways there because they are expensive. But what we are going to do is that we're going to really reduce speeds. And that's a big issue in Auckland right now. Because in the last three years, Auckland has had a, had a 70, 78% increase in deaths and serious injuries on the entire road work network in Auckland. That is vast, absolutely vast. Now, we know that, that deaths and serious injuries are increasing on New Zealand roads and on Australian roads, for instance. For years they went down, now they're all those deaths and serious injuries are going up. But Auckland is way, the increase is way more. The interesting thing is we've just had Paul Steely White out here from New York. And what he has managed to do in New York through a Vision Zero approach, which is to say, Deaths and serious injuries actually are not just a natural consequence of roads and traffic on roads. It's an unnatural consequence. It's one where we've designed the road so there's no forgiving, there's no allowance factor for people to make mistakes. And the fabulous thing is, this is why I'm impressed by Paul Steely White, they've reduced deaths and serious injuries in New York in the last four years by 30%. And they've done that by slowing speeds, seriously. And that's the next thing that we're going to have to do in Auckland. And we're starting to do it just now, is we're slowing speeds right across the network. So in the central areas where we can't always, um, in little villages, for instance, like Devonport, we can't separate the road, the transport, right in the middle of the, the little village. But we can slow speeds right down to 30k. That's what they've done in New York, and it's delivering the goods. We're going to do that. We're going to have to do that in Auckland, and we're underway now. Okay, so that's kind of interesting because it's not just about the lanes particularly, it's more about reducing the speed in the places where cyclists and cars coexist. Well, what we know about speed exactly is that we can we can live with a vehicle going 30, and I know that because I've just been cycling in Samoa. They don't have any separated cycleways and the roads are quite narrow, but the traffic, the, the official traffic max speed is 55, but most of the vehicles go about 30. And they trundle along behind you quietly, and then they'll go poop quietly on their horn. Not to say, poop, I want to, you know, get out of my way, but poop, I'm here, I'll pass you when I'm ready. And when, you, when, it, when I know you're going to be safe, 
And, and the simple reality is that as you lower speeds, people walk away from accidents. At higher speeds, at 60k, which is, you know, the 50 default situation, at 60k, people don't walk away from speeds, from, from a crash. So we've got to make it so people get up and walk away later. Ex crashes, they're not accidents, they're crashes. Because we all, you know, we're distracted, we, we make mistakes, we're human. So let's design our roads for that. So on the topic of uh, accidents and accident prevention, um, the topic of helmets. So in Auckland, as some listeners might not know, uh, it's a legal requirement to wear a helmet here. In a lot of cities around the world, it is not. Um, and so the argument that I kind of see cropping up quite a lot of the time is obviously wear a helmet for safety for yourself, uh, but let's actually prevent the accident from happening, not using helmet as an excuse, uh, as a distraction from the real issues. Uh, what's your views on that? My personal views are that in Auckland today, I'm happy to wear a helmet because our roads aren't connected up in terms of safe cycling. Um, when I am in Europe, I'm very comfortable not wearing a helmet. Ride in Berlin, no helmet, no worries. So to me, I agree completely with your approach. It's all about designing the roads that are safe and it's not really necessary, shouldn't be necessary for cyclists to protect themselves against the, bad, against the, the, the flaws in the transport and the road design or even other road users' behaviour. And there's no doubt it's, it's far more fun riding along without a helmet. So ideally in New Zealand and Australia, I think we should be along with heading towards vision zero, you know, really seriously lowering deaths and serious injuries. We should be creating dedicated infrastructure in the right places so that in the end helmets are just a completely, you know, you can choose, but they, sh they don't need to be compulsory. So one thing that struck me almost immediately when I got to Auckland, um, pretty much as soon as I stepped off the airplane and started riding my bike, was how hilly the place was. Um, and it wasn't until talking to friends that I realised the city is built on 48 volcanoes. Do you think that kind of has a negative impact for the city to keep people cycling? I think it, it does have an impact, if we're real, but it's not just hills. And you'll know as a cyclist, it's not just hills, it's the hills and, and the wind and and um, wind-driven rain, they're, they're all factors that are, you know, make, don't make for the best pleasant cycling conditions. But a couple of things is really interesting. Wellington has always had a really high cycling rate and it's way hillier than Auckland. Um, Christchurch has had a very hilly, a very high cycling rate, more than Auckland. It's flat, but it's bloody cold down there. So, you know, you look at Copenhagen, you can see people there cycling in the snow. So they're staunch. I wouldn't cycle in the snow. But I, look, I think, it, I think we're used to the hills. I have a property out at Waiheke, which is hell of a steep. But I kind of, you know, there's a certain amount of sort of kaputs, sort of, oh, I, can, I can deal with this hill. And you like that. But of course, the big, the thing that's really had a huge impact in Auckland are e-bikes. So when I go to somewhere like Melbourne, which is a flat city, I don't notice e-bikes at all. In Auckland, they're just going gangbusters. And it's for all age groups. So you'll see these gorgeous young things in Ponsonby on the e-bikes because they don't want to look the slightest bit flustered. 
And then you'll go out to another part of the city where you've got an 80-year-old whizzing along on their e-bike, you know, feeling just like they're on top of the world. So e-bikes are made for Auckland and they will, they will progressively change what we're doing. So a combination of the e-bikes and good safe cycling. This is why I'm predicting that Auckland cycling, we haven't seen, you know, we've got a boom now, absolutely, but this is, a, this is nothing to what's coming our way. So that mostly brings me on to the topic of uh, e-bikes. Um, e-bikes around the world are growing um, in every single category of cycling, it seems. What are your thoughts on e-bikes growing here in Auckland? Because I know from around the world there's different issues that are uh, coming out. I mean, some of them might be that the bikes are being regulated for their speed and power. Uh, and in some places I've even read reports of an increase in deaths in, in elderly people because... They're cycling on things that are too quick for them to handle, on on cycling lanes that aren't appropriate for the speed of these e-bikes. Well, electric bikes, as I've said, are absolutely crucial part of our growth. Um, I think it was last year, summer last, summer one year ago, I think we had 25,000 e-bikes imported into New Zealand. And of course, since then, there's been endless new varieties of e-bikes available. What I like about e-bikes, it's not just allowing people to commute to work, but now the smart offices from around town all have fleets of e-bikes instead of using taxis and vehicles. So um, I think I think it's a retro. You, you wouldn't dream in Auckland of, of banning them because because there's this fabulous new move. Everybody wants to have fleets of e-bikes as their office bikes, and show that they're the smart kids in town. So that's really important. Um, there does need to be a speed restriction on them. I thought we did have a um, a power restriction on our e-bikes, and I think that's sensible. But see, and people in Auckland will, will bike quite a long way. You know, I, I know people who will bike from out west. They'll, they'll bike 30k into work on an e-bike along the northwestern cycleway and from way out of the city, a long way out. They'll do that, they'll power, and, and of course now it's becoming increasingly normal for officers to provide power charging facilities. It's just happening everywhere. So then they charge their bike and they whiz home. And they beat all the traffic in the process. And, and and the weather's not so bad when you're traveling along at a decent speed and you're not having to put quite so much energy into it when you're when you're riding against the wind. So that they're they're a massive game changer in Auckland. But as I said, you go to Melbourne and they just don't feature. So Auckland is heaven for the whole technology that's coming our way to keep expanding cycling. Okay. Now I really want to ask you about Onzo, those black and yellow city bikes that have been popping up everywhere. And it's quite a funny subject because the, the kind of things I've seen happening with Onzo is quite interesting. Uh, so if any of the listeners are from a big city, you might know Onzo. They're um, this Chinese uh, made and, and delivered bikes that just appear in cities. Uh, you can use an app to unlock them, ride them, and then find the, the next one you want to ride. Some places they're really successful, some places not so. Um, in London especially when they first arrived i think they upset a lot of people because nobody said they were coming and then one day everyone woke up to these bikes around the city and the way people used them was also quite interesting sometimes people would throw them into the railway tracks that would end up in rivers lakes um, police were rounding them up and dumping them so how is it working here and funnily i wanted to ask this question because 
when I was doing some research, I looked on your website and one of the things that, that came up on it was, is your question about black and yellow Onzo bikes? Question mark. That's not us. You can contact Onzo directly via their Facebook page or on 0800. So that definitely made me smile. Um, so I want to know what's the reaction been like here? We were kind of stunned because Anzo did arrive overnight, literally with no announcement to anybody. Suddenly there were these, you know, like little wasps parked all around the city. And, and as you say, they're dockless, so they were just everywhere. Um, very quickly, we came on board with Onzo because we realised that people like teenagers love them. But we've also got sections of Auckland, like the Wynyard Quarter, where increasingly offices are being built with they're not allowed to provide um, car parking. And so things like Onzo bikes are really perfect for that. Um, we do mention them on our website because when Onzo arrived, they had no su support backup. Um, they they don't have I think I don't think they have an office even now, so that we were completely buried by emails. I'd get to begin with I'd get twenty emails a day. My bike's not working. I want to get my money back. Da 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 da. Endless complaints about Onzo, and we thought, come on Onzo, we're happy to have you, but we're not actually going to do all your admin support for you. So that's why we put that on our website so that people get the message that, that Onzo is a different organisation from Bike Auckland because the problem was that Bike Auckland does have big profile and so they'd kind of put on, you know, we have lots of international students in New Zealand, they love Onzo, but they'd, you know, type in bike on their, on their, on their phone and they'd get, Bike Auckland would come up and then they'd just pour their hearts out or the woe of Onzo. But we've met, met the guys from Onzo and they are amazingly, there's no back office with Onzo in New Zealand. Um, they told us that and they said they wanted to boost it up a bit. So we think they're really important because they provide that really flexible short travel around town and it's mostly around town because they've got no gears and you know we've been talking already about the hills in Auckland. They, pro they provide a niche in the market which I think is really important but what we also love is that they provide more really visible bike presence around town and so that bikes are there, they're visible, they're part of the landscape. So I think overall, let's give them 90 out of 100 for being here and for promoting bikes and making bikes a natural part of how we move around the city. But a back office wouldn't be bad, <laughs> but hopefully that'll happen in time. So I want to talk about the Auckland Harbour Bridge. And for those of you that don't know, it's a kilometre long bridge that kind of stretches from Auckland and links up the North Shore. Quite an important bridge. It's also eight lanes as well. And one day I decided to travel to the North Shore cycling and decided to go over it. Yet yeah, you couldn't. There's no cycle lanes. There's no public walkways going over it. It's an eight lane motorway that allows no traffic except from cars to go over it so how did that happen and, and why did they not think about adding a small lane for anyone else to travel over yeah it looks a perfectly valid question you're right you know i go to sydney melbourne i haven't been to the states yet but i'm going to new york later i'm dying to ride over brooklyn bridge later in the year um it, it's part of new zealand thinking small we we have a tendency to be a bit cautious about how we build and, and we're mingy, you know, we, we're not we're not Australia in the sense of we're not buried in money. So back in the 50s when we built the Harbour Bridge, it was designed to have certainly allow for walking, cycling and cars, but remember it was only two lanes wide. 
and so um, first thing that they they got short of money and they said oh well we'll knock that um, you know the walking and cycling off no no we'll save money there we'll knock that off and then they built it well of course we know that within about what five or six years they had to come along and put clip-ons on either side of it because they totally underestimated the demand even just for vehicles because then the North Shore of Auckland just boomed um, and since for about um, 15 years we've been trying to get walking and cycling on the Harbour Bridge and part of the problem was that as I said there are clip-ons and so people said oh you know it's kind of a bit unstable that bridge it really can't cope with the walking and cycling and then we realised that there's one um, traffic comes into Auckland and it tends to go north so the heavy trucks go north so coming back into the city that means the eastern side of the bridge has spare capacity just so happens the eastern side of the bridge has the gobsmackingly beautiful view back into the city out to Rangatoto and even a little bit of our beautiful gulf so then we started targeting that eastern side of the bridge again and um, it's been a really long hard struggle to get that project. There's no doubt about it all. Aucklanders want it, big time. It's the one thing when Bike Auckland messages put Skypath anywhere into the story, people just go mad, they want to read it, they say, when's it coming? There's a person called Bevan Woodward who really has devoted his life for the last 10 years to getting Skypath. He, he's, in the end, he came up with a, a, fun, a proposal whereby people who used it would pay a $2 fee. And we were all quite prepared to do that. Anybody, you know, we're desperate to get it just like you were. Um, so we had resource consent for it. That was a struggle because, you know, we're really good on NIMBYs in Auckland and people where the sky path landed on the North Shore, they said, no, we don't want cyclists coming here. They, you know, because there was two lines. One is they'll come in th- oh, huge hordes. And then the other thing was that, no, it will never be economic because no one will use it. So only yesterday... The government stepped in. We've got the good coalition government now of Labour, Greens and New Zealand First. They've stepped in and they said, we will pay $67 million or whatever it takes to build Skypath. Press go. Here's the money. So that that's the end, we hope, of a long story. It might take um, maybe three years to build it. But by the time America's Cup's here, the big competition in 21, I want to see Skypath built because we can't have too many people like you all turning up at each end of the bridge saying, how can I get across? You know, it's it's just, we can't hold our heads up in the world anymore if we can't get across our harbour bridge on a bike. So before I arrived in Auckland in New Zealand, I did a bit of research around cycling here and what the reputation was and it didn't seem to be too good, um, driving especially, uh, but also bus drivers as well. And some of the experiences I've had since I've been here haven't been great they've been okay not as bad as some cities i've been to but not the best either and driving instructors to actually engage in training around cycling a bit more people generally tell us from overseas that we're bad drivers in new zealand i think they could be right we we tend to be easily distracted um we we, we don't take it seriously enough and that's shown in those driving stats and you know, deaths and serious injuries I talked to you about in terms of Auckland. So our road conditions are not well designed and our driving habits are poor. We're quite arrogant about it. And the funny thing is that, you know, when we're in a car, it's funny, I take my husband cycling quite a lot and 
when he's in a car, he's just bloody awful, you know? He says, well, you know, get that cyclist out of my way. And then I'm cycling along the road with him and he says, look at that car. That's exact. he is a typical person in New Zealand. You know, whatever mode we're travelling in, we resent the other person on the road, sharing the road with us. So that's a, that's a pattern and I think we've got a way to go. That's why I say on arterial roads we separate people out. So that so that all that, those sort of that dumb ignorant behaviour that we tend to slip into is means that people don't get hurt. The buses are another one. Um, I mean, buses are big, heavy vehicles with with serious blind spots. We know that. Um, about three years ago, the transport agency in New Zealand funded a program to try and educate bus drivers. And, and the person doing it is actually part of the Bike Auckland team. So he's employed to deliver this, this contract. And he has a really good approach to it. And what we do is, um, is that we get a bus drive, we get a number of bus drivers and, and they hop on bikes and they go dry, riding down one of our really nasty roads. And, and they get to learn to see just how vulnerable they feel. And they say that. They're really good. They say, oh, gee, I wouldn't do this often. I, I feel, look at that bus going past me. And, and then the other thing is, and then we get we come, get, come back and, and they put cyclists into a bus. And then we get to realise how immovable, you know, that they're, they're big, heavy boxes really moving around the street. And we get to see the blind corners. And the same program works with trucks because we're actually trucks are a big issue because we other companies probably move a hell of a lot more freight by train than we do in New Zealand, and our, tra- our truck drivers have big truck and trailer units and they tend to be put, once again serious blind spots, working long hours, tired, and essentially dangerous. Um, so the same program is applying to them. The, the thing with bus drivers is that we have a big turnover of bus drivers as well. I don't know how it applies in London. People might be more dedicated long term. So, so it's a, we need way more resources to going into um, that program. Because the interesting thing is the program, once someone's done it, it's highly successful. Just not enough bus drivers have done it would be my take on it. Okay, so one thing that was quite interesting to hear there is the education given to bus drivers um, when they're out on the road to cycle. One of my experiences when I was learning to drive was my instructor had quite a negative view of cycling. So for example, when we were out doing lessons, uh, he would mention, I can't remember exactly, watch out for Billy and his Lycra uh, on your left and then make some joke about it as well. Do you think there's a wider role for people driving and also teaching people on the road? Um, yeah, absolutely, without any doubt. Uh, and part of that makes me question you on one element. How, how old were you when you got your driver's licence? Was that fairly standard amongst your mates? Yeah, I do think so. I think people in the, the big cities will tend to learn to drive later on because of public transport. Um, but typically outside, I'd say, yeah, a lot younger, maybe 18 onwards. Yeah, because that's the factor that I think has made a big difference. Because remember, a generation ago... Um, kids rode bikes standardly around going to school. Huge numbers we had, and then they then it fell off because then we, then we had we have a lot of cheap cars in New Zealand. We because we import them from Japan. Australia doesn't allow that to happen, so cars are very cheap. People can buy cars very quickly, cheaply, um, and you get your license when you're 15. When I was growing up, getting your license was was a sign of adulthood. 15. 
and and that's a big issue so if you learn to drive first and you don't know how to ride a bike you'll be a hazard on the road because you have no understanding of people around you and I know that for a fact because I went to boarding school didn't have the chance to ride a bike but when I came back and started riding a you know riding a bike in Auckland it's the best thing I ever learned a as a defensive driver and also just um, respect for others on the road so to me Auckland Transport's doing a fabulous job. 10,000 people a year are taught to ride bikes in Auckland because we know we've got a lot of catch-up. So the very point you're making is that we know that, that kids who grow up riding bikes first, before they get their licences, our Automobile Association says they have a far lower crash record than kids who just grow up, you know, are passengers in the family car and then take to driving. So the magic thing is get people on bikes as soon as you possibly can and then they will have those defensive skills because we all need them when we're on a bike because we know that we're looking around all the time. You know, you don't do that in a car in the same manner if you haven't learnt to ride a bike. And I wonder about other places like Copenhagen now where so many people ride bikes once again. They'll have a far better road culture because people understand the bikes they understand about moving around bikes and they respect the fact that that person on the bike will be there negative you know they'll be a rally they'll be so that it's a whole lot of factors and the magic thing get the people on the bikes as soon as you possibly can so this question is for any listeners out there now that want to know more about what they can do really in the cities in the towns to improve cycling um, for everyone really in your experience of doing this role building this organization what kind of advice would you give someone who's out there passionate about cycling? They want to see more people cycling, um, but they don't really know what to do and how to go about empowering other people or at least giving themselves the tools to go out there and get things done. You know, what would you? What kind of advice would you give someone thinking, I'm going to make change and this is how I'm going to go about doing it? Oh, right. Okay, that's interesting. Um, firstly, I remember Bike Auckland grew out of cycle action that's been here for 20 years. I'm, I'm a latecomer to the party. And I'm, I'm a lucky latecomer because the party was really stunned to rev along when I walked in the door. But what I realised is there's no question that building safe infrastructure is a key to getting people to bike and creating a curiosity to bike. It helps in Auckland. We have awful congestion so that now moving around the city is so painful that people are looking at alternatives so they are now looking for public transport and bikes. So the advice to anybody who wanted to get organised in the future, somewhere else in the world, um, what are the elements that have made it significant for us? I'd say having raising our profile within Auckland through having our communications really well done has been extremely significant because the messaging that we put out there is always inclusive we make a point of never picking enemies and never pointing the finger so and and we're now known as that so i think that's really important number one start off with an intention of being inclusive so secondly if you can bring some money on board by some way or another that's incredibly helpful but that's not always necessarily easy to do so the next thing i'd say is volunteer energy can take you a long way we still, Bike Auckland is still, it still pedals along big time on our, 
professional and other volunteer talent. So never dis, ne, never discount or devalue volunteers because of their commitment and what they can deliver. But what, if you can support them with some professional staff, what I've found is that then you, you avoid that sense of burnout, which other organisations do suffer for. Auckland, so Bike Auckland's been lucky, we've got this 20 year history but I, I just admire those people back 20 years ago when cycling was seen as only for losers. How did they keep their passion going? You know, I wonder about that. And I think that deep down, it's something to do with the bike because bikes do generate an amazing loyalty. And I know that, you know, my golden girl out there, she's only one bike, um, but I love her to bits. And, and there's something about bikes that just, leaps into our heart so don't ever you know underestimate the the adoration that bikes attract themselves and the last thing I'd say is that kids adore bikes so certainly work with kids whenever you can because the thing about the bike it gives us all independence and and I know this from the fact that New Zealand was the first country in the world to have women vote and interestingly enough, I come from a, from a family where Kate Shepherd, who led that campaign, she was part of my whanau. And she managed to get people to support a huge campaign across New Zealand. There was no social media back then, 150 years ago. And yet she got, the, you know, we were first in the world to give women the vote. And, and they did that through getting women out on bikes at a time when they weren't allowed to travel any other way. So let's remember, women, kids, we love the independence that biking gives us. So target women and kids, because they're, they're a bit of a secret formula, I'd say to you. Women, kids, enthusiasm, the bike itself, volunteers, and if you get a chance, do what you can to get some money, to get to some support, to get some professionalism, to keep those volunteers, you know, producing away the way they will. And there, from there on, that's how we all began as small ad, you know, advocacy groups, and we power up from there. And then get some money from council or government to put on the roads what we all need, and you'll be flying. So thanks for listening to me and Barbara talking. This is me, John Pears, your host, director, editor, promoter, uh, organizer. Really, I'm doing kind of everything uh, at the moment. Um, it's a long journey I'm going to be on, and I'm glad to have you guys along. Um, if you can do the usual promoting the show, sharing it with your friends, leaving a review in the podcast as well, wherever you get your feed, uh, that'd be great. It'll help me get the show out there. And don't forget to check out the website, pedalingpodcast.com, which is constantly in kind of update mode, being refreshed, being updated. It's not finished. It's kind of work in progress. And also follow me on Pedaling Podcast at Instagram as well. And in next week's show, I'm talking to Alistair Wobble from Wobble's distribution business, who talks to me about logistics. From the time of ordering to time of delivery in New Zealand could easily be three to six months, depending on the product. The difficulties of running a globalised cycling business? They're a real threat to the business, to our business, yeah, because they can offer 
a huge range of products. And being a 100-year-old business. In 1901, we didn't have anything to do with bicycles. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.